Oral anticoagulation therapy. What's in store for us in the near future? You are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD, your host. And with me is Dr. Ann Witkowski, PharmD, Director of the University of Washington Medical Center Anticoagulation Services in Seattle. Dr. Witkowski was a co-author on an article entitled Genetic Testing for Warfarin Dosing, Not Yet Ready for Prime Time, which appeared in the journal Pharmacotherapy. She's also a certified anticoagulation care provider and a fellow of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy and American Society of Health System Pharmacists. Dr. Witkowski, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Now, we're going to be discussing the current and potential future roles of warfarin and how those may play into anticoagulation therapy, but I just wanted to start by asking if you could tell us a little about yourself. What does your job involve? I'm the Director of Anticoagulation Services at the University of Washington Medical Center, which is a program that encompasses four ambulatory anticoagulation clinics that manage outpatients who are taking antithrombotic therapy and is also responsible for coordinating all aspects of the use of antithrombotic drugs in the hospital system for inpatients. Okay, so warfarin and other anticoagulants, the subcutaneous That's right, molecular weight heparins, direct thrombin inhibitors, and all aspects of care around those drugs, everything from the management of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia to the use of these kinds of agents in patients who are undergoing neuraxial anesthesia. We have protocols and guidelines and all kinds of information available on our website, which is www.uwmcacc.org. There you'll find all of our program components as well as patient education materials in five languages. You've got information on the website around neuraxial blockade and how long it is that clinicians should wait after stopping anticoagulation therapy and restart anticoagulation. There are a number of very practical issues around the use of antithrombotic agents in patients undergoing neuraxial procedures because of the risk of spinal hematoma formation with the use of antithrombotic drugs in that particular setting. And so there are some specific guidelines that need to be followed around timing, not just the timing of the antithrombotic therapy, but also the timing of the procedures in patients who are already on antithrombotic drugs. And this isn't just accessible in-house. This is something that's available public domain by the web. That's right. Exactly. Our website is available for the use of all. Fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about warfarin itself for a moment. What are some of the major indications for warfarin therapy? Well, perhaps the most common and the one that is growing to the greatest extent is for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. It's been estimated that by the year 2050, nearly 7 million patients in the United States will have atrial fibrillation. And although there are new procedures and new drug therapies aimed at reducing the rate of atrial fibrillation, as long as stroke prevention remains an issue, the use of antithrombotic therapy will be necessary. And so atrial fibrillation is one of the major indications for oral anticoagulation. Others include prevention and treatment of venous thromboembolism, long-term prevention of valvular thrombosis in patients with a valve replacement, and a variety of other indications all related to arterial and venous thrombosis. Why is it that warfarin is so tricky to dose? Well, it's referred to as a narrow therapeutic index drug, and I think that's a fancy term to describe the fact that there's very little rhyme or reason to what a dosing requirement will be in an individual patient. There is a correlation 
between increasing dose and increasing prothrombin time, increasing serum concentrations in a population. But there's very little consistency for dosing requirement among individuals. So some people need as little as a half a milligram to get to a therapeutic endpoint. Others need 20 milligrams or more on a daily basis to get to that same endpoint. And there are a variety of factors that influence dosing requirement, everything from dietary vitamin K intake to age to alcohol use to drug interactions, and as well, some new information about genetic status that appears to influence dosing requirement. In the last half of 2007, manufacturers of warfarin updated the medications package labeling to reflect genetic testing as a means to help dose warfarin. What do we know about genetic testing and how might that play a role in warfarin therapy? Well, this is actually a very fascinating science. Over the last four or five years, it's become clear that genetic expression of cytochrome P452C9, which is one of the hepatic microsomal enzymes that metabolizes S-warfarin, the more potent of the two enantiomers, the genetic expression of that particular enzyme influences dosing requirement. There are a number of different genetic expressions of that enzyme, some of which reduce the clearance of warfarin and increase its elimination half-life. And so some knowledge of the genetic expression of that enzyme can help to assist in understanding clearance and half-life of the drug and appears to influence dosing requirement. As well, over the last few years, it's become clear that genetic expression of vitamin K epoxide reductase, which is the active site for warfarin, also influences dosing requirement. I would say across a whole spectrum of dosing. So the availability of vitamin K epoxide reductase is influenced by genomics or genetics. There's a lot of work going on right now to try and understand whether or not knowledge of genetic background or genetic status will influence certain parameters around warfarin dosing. And in fact, in the last couple of weeks, an article appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine from Vanderbilt University, one of a number of scientific publications that has helped us to understand that genetic status does influence dosing requirement. What we don't know is whether genetic status influences more important outcomes like bleeding and thromboembolic recurrence. It appears that patients with cytochrome P452C9 variants have a higher risk of bleeding, but it is not clear whether knowledge of those variants will reduce the risk of bleeding. So there's a huge unknown at the moment, and that is whether or not this information has any bearing on clinical outcomes. Can you say with certainty that there are benefits of genetic testing for warfarin at the moment? At the moment, I would say that is not clear whatsoever. There are a number of investigators who have developed algorithms for warfarin dosing where one plugs in a variety of factors, including genetic status for cytochrome P452C9 and vitamin K epoxide reductase, as well as certain drug interactions, patient age in certain circumstances, height or weight, the presence of other drugs, and then various programs or regression models will spit out a particular dose that may be the patient's maintenance dose. And although that's a fancy way of initiating therapy, 
it is not clear that using an algorithm like that will have any impact on clinical outcomes. Those types of algorithms, like the computer programs based on population pharmacokinetics that were developed in the late 70s and early 80s, can influence the efficiency of warfarin dosing compared to certain methods. But again, it's not clear that any of this has any bearing on long-term clinical outcomes in terms of reducing bleeding complications or reducing the rate of thromboembolic recurrence. And those are really important things that need to be investigated and will be in upcoming and proposed clinical trials. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ann Witkowski from the University of Washington Medical Center. We've been discussing the importance of warfarin as the sole oral anticoagulant in the U.S. and its evolving role. And we've just recently been talking about genetics and how genetic testing might play a role in warfarin dosage. Dr. Witkowski, what are the limitations or shortfalls associated with genetic testing? Well, first of all, it is because we don't know the long-term clinical impact of genetic testing. There's a very big unknown around economics. Is this a cost-effective methodology? There's an enormous cost associated with testing in the neighborhood of 250 to $500 per patient, which, of course, you have to multiply by the millions of patients who are currently on warfarin and the many patients who start warfarin each year. And then compare that to whether or not there are economic benefits in terms of reducing the risk of bleeding complications. And without that knowledge, it is really impossible to estimate whether or not this approach is cost-effective. You had mentioned in an article that had come out in the New England Journal of Medicine in which they found that certain haplotypes and certain genetic profiles pertaining to vitamin K, epoxide reductase, and cytochrome P2C9, the results of the study found that basically we could predict perhaps time to therapeutic range or first INR within therapeutic range and first INR above a four or in the uh, super therapeutic range. What kind of turnaround time are we looking at? Is it practical to be using genetic testing? Well, one needs this information within the first few days of therapy in order to use it in a practical way. Because remember, what it is estimating is eventual maintenance dose. The standard approach to initiating therapy is to either give a, an average daily dose, let's say five milligrams a day, and check the international normalized ratio or INR within the first three or four days. And although that's a standard approach in the average patient, there are certain patients who are assumed to be more sensitive to the effects of the drug in whom one might use a smaller dose, patients on certain interacting drugs, patients who are particularly elderly, etc. In those kinds of patients, you might start at, let's say, two and a half milligrams a day and check an INR in several days. It is the rate of increase in the INR that is a clue to clinicians about sensitivity, and that's why INR testing must be done relatively rapidly after initiation therapy. 
So genetic information, if it's going to be of any assistance during initiation therapy, needs to be available relatively rapidly, let's say within the first 24 to 48 hours of initiation therapy. There are concerns that waiting for genetic testing results may delay the initiation of therapy, which could potentially increase harm in patients who require anticoagulant therapy for the treatment of thrombosis, for example. It's also important to recognize that the average dosing seen among the various V-Core haplotype groups in the investigation that was recently published in the New England Journal was different by only about 2 milligrams, and that is a difference in dosing that is so subtle that it may not be clinically relevant. It's certainly relevant from the perspective of long-term maintenance dosing, but early in therapy, those kinds of subtleties are evident relatively quickly and are seen with INR testing. So again, it is not clear that the knowledge of this information will actually influence clinical practice in the long run. Dr. Ann Wachowski has been our guest in our discussion of the present and future of oral anticoagulation therapy. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed our discussion. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and you've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with the promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening.